0: To Brilliant Science, the podcast that peeks into some of the amazing science being done in research centres around the world, and in our episode today, I'm joined by Dr Adam Hoppe. He's the associate professor at South Dakota State University, and he's also the director of BioSNTR. How do you say that, Adam?
1: Bio Center.
0: Bio, oh, Bio Center, that makes sense. And what, can you explain to us a little bit about what the Bio Center is and what it does?
1: Sure thing. Yeah, Bio Center was created as a way to create a virtual center in in uh, our our rural state of south dakota where we can pool uh, research expertise and tools and resources to to really elevate uh, the research game here so biocenter is a a virtual center Um, it's sponsored in part by the state of south dakota uh, as well as the national uh, science foundation in biocenter we put together teams of scientists Uh, we make investments in in different kinds of instrumentation, uh, specifically advanced microscopes, as well as uh, next generation sequencing tools mm-hmm. uh, to tackle uh, problems both in uh, human health as mm-hmm. well as uh, in agriculture and plant science.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So it's it's moving along with that virtual mindset, which, which really is kind of popping up uh, across every kind of part of uh, research right now. So that's uh, good to hear, especially important for where you're located within the U.S.,
1: Exactly. Yeah. One of the things I always hear is, you know, where is the BioCenter building? <laughs> Not in a single building. Um, and I think that we're able to take advantage of different people's uh, tools and expertise, being able to work right where they are mm-hmm. um, and, in their, in, and thrive in their environment. But by connecting and rallying around specific uh, scientific questions... Um, we can bring people from different disciplines together, and be able to tackle those questions in a way that we wouldn't uh, if there wasn't a catalytic uh, center like BioCenter mm-hmm. helping drive those things forward.
0: How long has it been around for?
1: Um, so we started in uh, 2014, okay. uh, fall of 2014. Okay. Um, so we're in our in our fourth year now. Great. Uh, and really, really just hitting our stride. It's a we're still early in the process, we've hired faculty, we've put, uh, invested in instruments, um, and we've, we've built our teams, and we're starting to see the uh, return on those investments. So, mm-hmm. um, new publications coming out, new grants being supported, new ideas, uh, and new impacts are, are, are starting to come forward from the center. And we're looking forward to continuing to build on those ideas mm-hmm. and expand the center's uh, uh, overall research portfolio and impact.
0: Well, congratulations on that. I mean, it it, it sounds so important for for everybody involved, and then it's going to have far-reaching consequences, I'm sure, as well as those networks start to expand out. So yeah, that's super awesome. The focus that you have right now, which is on phagocytosis or phagocytosis, for our listeners who maybe don't know or, or don't remember from their... Uh, student days. <laughs> Could you give us a little bit of a background on, on, on what phagocytosis is?
1: Sure thing. So phagocytosis <laughs> is a cellular process. So we think about cells, you can kind of start to think about, you know, like the 1958 movie, The Blob, a <laughs> uh, scientific horror film. Of, uh, you know, of a, uh, if, if you zoom in and you think about a cell as a, as, as a, as a big, you know, blob-like creature, Um, phagocytosis is the part where the blob engulfs and and, and destroys everything in its path. Um, In our lab, we're we're particularly interested in a cell called the macrophage, or the big eater, uh, if you will. (laughs) The cell's job is to to sit in in the tissues of the body uh, and, and use phagocytosis to engulf and destroy things like invading microorganisms dead or dying cells, aggregated proteins, um, and uh, it can also be directed to uh, <laughs> apply its trade of blob-like trade of <laughs> engulfing and destroying targets uh, by recognizing signals such as antibodies that are attached to the target.
0: I'm, I'm never going to be able to think about it now without thinking about the blob. That's that's really awesome. <laughs> 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 that's funny. Um, so... I know you didn't start out as a biologist, so you know, how did you end up studying phagocytosis?
1: Yeah, so it started out by a fantastic mentor, uh, Joel Swanson, uh, who has been studying phagocytosis for many years, and he was mentored by people that studied phagocytosis, um, going, going back through a long lineage of cell biologists and immunologists. Um, and But the, the thing about Joel and, and why he's so important in, in my path into cell biology and macrophage biology and phagocytosis is that he was a great interdisciplinarian. Uh, I hadn't taken a biology course uh, in my undergraduate work at all. It wasn't until I started working on a master's degree in, in medical physics that I, I started taking biology courses, started learning about biological systems, and in that, I really fell in love with the idea of cell biology. But I had all these uh, skills from medical physics mm-hmm. around, uh, mostly around imaging uh, mm-hmm. and medical imaging. Uh, and I met Joel. And Joel um, recognized that uh, those skills are of great value for cell biology. Uh, he, you know, he was a person who was a big proponent of using microscopes mm-hmm. uh, in, instead of necessarily Western blots <laughs> to, <laughs> to be able to peer into cells and and try to understand how the machinery, the protein machinery, lipid machinery, uh, is organized inside cells. He immediately recognized, um, I guess, my potential in terms of being able to contribute to using uh, microscopes to to study cells and peer into cells. Um, And he was working on macrophages uh, and phagocytosis. And that, um, that his mentoring and that interaction really lit a fire uh, in me for for understanding this cell mm-hmm. and understanding this this biology and it was also a cell that at, at the time we didn't have great tools for doing uh, for for genetic manipulation for um, being able to express uh, fluorescent protein fusions and, and right. so forth so yeah um, you couldn't do a lot of the, the techniques that a person would was traditionally doing at, at, at the time of um, doing a lot of genetic uh, approaches and using conventional you know, Western blotting strategies and so forth to study the macrophage and study phagocytes. Mm-hmm. So we had to rely on, on tools like optical microscopy. Um, and I've basically been working since that point in time forward uh, <laughs> to, to really understand, um, understand the macrophage. And, and fortunately now we have uh, much better tools and we're able to uh, have some, get some traction in being able to manipulate these cells uh, genetically.
0: And so I see that that all kind of came you know came together in the, in the recent publication that you've had in Nature Communications.
1: yep, that publication was really one of you know I still continue to build microscope tools um, and use some mathematical modeling, study cell biology and in in that paper, um, we really leveraged all of those tools to be able to answer a question about how How do molecules inside the cell, uh, and this actually turns out all cells, uh, do this process called endocytosis? Mm -hmm. They they will bend uh, small portions of their out-limiting membrane, their plasma membrane, uh, into vesicles, um, uh, small, about 100 uh, nanometer-sized lipid-enclosed vesicles. And in that that work, we uh, developed a a new microscopy method uh, and applied multiple... High-resolution microscopy methods to be able to image how molecules assemble at the cell surface, uh, at that limiting membrane, wow. and then bend physically bend that membrane from a flat surface into a spherical object, ultimately pinching it off from the from the membrane and, and forming a new intracellular vesicle. Wow! Um, and, and you're exactly right. That's an example of you know combining uh, skills in biology mm-hmm. with uh, advanced microscopy and new tools in microscopy.
0: Yeah. So I know that in the publication, you you have to use um, engineered proteins. Did you use um, any genome editing for the expression of those proteins?
1: Exactly. So uh, we were really turned on um, by a publication that came out of David Driven's lab in which they had used uh, zinc finger nucleases to insert uh, a gene for a fluorescent protein uh, in frame on the chromosome uh, with some of the machinery that's involved in making these endocytic structures. His work and, uh, led us eventually to, to be able to, to, to start studying uh, class and endocytosis in particular um, but we had a technical issue. We had we were unable to use the cells that he had made in, with our microscopy technique. Oh. And that was really what got uh, my lab started in the use of CRISPR. Mm-hmm. We had started using uh, Talens, uh, another uh, gene editing tool, um, and uh, to try and make fluorescent protein uh, fusions on some of that machinery, mm-hmm. um, uh, but right at that same time, publications around uh, uh, from the Doudna lab and Zhang lab were coming out about CRISPR. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd gotten quite excited about this, and we, we immediately jumped on it. <laughs> and we were able to, to use CRISPR to insert uh, fluorescent protein uh, genes uh, in frame with the, the gene that codes for the structural protein that is involved in forming these clathrate cages and bending the membrane at the cell surface. Got it. And you know David Drubin's initial work there, uh, and then uh, our application of CRISPR to insert that fluorescent protein was a critical advance Mm -hmm. uh, because it allowed us to watch only the proteins that have. uh, Or the fluorescent protein attached to them and and not have to mix and match with different expression levels uh, from trying to express a fluorescent copy in addition to the native copy
0: got it so it it made the picture way clearer
1: exactly right and so
0: (laughs) so if you had continued on the talon path do you think the work would have taken longer or did CRISPR speed things up for you
1: yeah, CRISPR certainly sped things up. I mean, all of these uh, gene editing approaches are are some are somewhat technical in nature. And uh, talons were certainly not a trivial uh, approach to, to develop those. We realized the power of CRISPR uh, almost immediately mm-hmm. uh, and found that a very easy path to be able to get into doing gene editing um, and I think we hit, we hit a few things right right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've basically, since we've started working with CRISPR at that point, we've just continued with it because it's been a very easy tool and a very efficient tool for us to, to make uh, gene editing approaches or make gene editing changes yeah. in uh, cells for studying cell biology.
0: So do you think that are you kind of the, the go-to people now within um, the biocenter for, for CRISPR?
1: Yeah, we've definitely taken on that role, <laughs> um, which is kind of a fun role because you get to hear about a lot of ideas. You get yeah. a lot of ideas pitched at you. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's also a, a challenge to, to, you know, be able, to, you can't tackle all of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and, and that's exactly right. So that's, a, I think, a core... Um, our, our, you a know, core technique and technology in, in the center, and we're using it to our, to our full advantage.
0: You mentioned about how your work is impacting the design of antibodies and immunotherapies and, and potentially cell-based assays, and I know that you have a partnership with SAB Therapeutics. Mm-hmm. Could you yep. maybe share a little bit about that, because that's very fascinating work.
1: Sure thing. So SAB Biotherapeutics uh, is a company that develops uh, therapeutic antibodies, mm-hmm. and they do it in a in a in a pretty special way. Uh, they have uh, cattle that have that express the human uh, genes or have the human genes for uh, uh, producing antibodies. Right. So they're able to very rapidly produce um, antibodies that could be used as therapeutics in in humans. Either, say as antivirals, for uh, rapidly emerging infectious diseases, oh. or um, uh, potentially for tar- for directing the immune system to target uh, uh, things such as cancer. We work closely uh, with with SAB <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, on new strategies for developing uh, uh, targets and developing antibodies for, for new targets and new applications. And that's paired well uh, with our fundamental work on the macrophage. So macrophages, like I said earlier, are able to they're one of the key effector cells that recognizes antibody-coded targets and can mediate antibody, de- what's called antibody-dependent cell cytotoxicity or cellular phagocytosis. Yep. In other words, ways that the antibodies can mediate killing of a, of a target. So um, it's, a, it's a very exciting time right now to be able to work on kind of both sides of that uh, uh, therapeutic area, mm-hmm. thinking about... The antibodies and their targets and how to make the antibodies better, and mm-hmm. also thinking about the effector cell uh, and how the the receptors on the effector cell and the mechanisms by which those receptors recognize antibodies and then mediate uh, the, ult- the response and killing of the target um, uh, is a nice synergy and pairing between those, those two uh, perspectives.
0: So definitely a two-pronged approach to just increase effectiveness of, of everything that's being built i think that's that's really brilliant when you're you're doing all this work and you're you're thinking about you know what's kind of next for your for your group do you have a a wish list or a, a vision for the future where you you'd like to see everything kind of finish up the, at the goal line <laughs>
1: yeah well for for me this is you know we're at the we're at a moment that i that i've been working for uh Working towards for a long time, um, we're now we're now in a position where we can genetically manipulate the immune cell in a way that we never could before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when I started in this field, we could just eke out you know uh, expression of a fluorescent protein uh, fusion or a knockdown of a particular protein, um, but it was slow and painful. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the, with the methods we've been developing recently uh, and use of CRISPR uh, in, the, in the macrophage, uh, we're able to, to look over large swaths of the, the genome, uh, creating gene disruptions across many genes and be able to start to rank their functions. Our next step, I think, is really identifying the importance and contributions of the uh, genes uh, to macrophage function mm-hmm. and phenotype, um, and, and right now we're... we're we have the tool uh, to be able to do that in, uh, in a way that we we never could before. Mm-hmm. I think this also combines uh, really well with our with our abilities in microscopy to be able to measure things like measure phagocytosis, measure uh, endocytosis, mm-hmm. um, uh, measure the effector functions of the macrophage, um, and so so. In in my mind, this is the most exciting uh, point in in my career, I think, uh, most exciting time to be doing this work. Uh, And I think CRISPR is a huge contributor to that because it's enabled us to um, really manipulate the the genome with a resolution that we couldn't before, Mm -hmm. and our new microscopes are able to uh, let us visualize and understand what's going on inside the macrophage with a resolution that we couldn't see before. So it's an exciting time. Yeah.
0: So with that in mind, what would you say to the younger you? You know, now you're you're saying, you know, you're, you're at the, the precipice of all these great discoveries and everything's coming together. What advice would you give to the younger you who I'm sure at some point in time is just ready to throw in the towel? <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, probably my biggest one is try to be a little bit less of a perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> I really like to see projects uh, get all the way through and be absolutely sure of the answer. I think the the one thing I would say to myself, you know, 10 years ago or, 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 or even 15 years ago would be, it's okay to have the idea, get enough data to, to demonstrate that you're on the right path, mm-hmm. uh, and, and keep on going. You <laughs> don't have to get all of it answered perfectly all of the time. uh And then maybe publish a little more often.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that that piece of advice could go well for basically anyone in research. So I hope people heed that advice and uh, take it to heart because I think that 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 really could uh, help a lot of people as they go along their research journey. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so thank you so much Adam it's it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today and I you know I look forward to seeing all your additional publications as they come come out and um, I hope our viewers keep a close eye on the work that's being done not only with the bio Center but all the work you're doing with your various collaborations as well I think it's um, it's extremely fascinating and as you say it's it's fundamental research but it also has applications to the patient so very exciting.
1: Well, Thank you, Laura. And thank you very much for having me. Really
0: enjoyed it. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. So to all of you out there listening, thank you too for joining us today. And be sure to come again for another Brilliant Science episode. The Brilliant Science podcasts are published monthly in our online magazine, Bioradiations. And you can find these podcasts and lots of other brilliant science-related stories there. Visit bioradiations.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, too. Bye for now. This podcast is an original creation of BioRad Labs. Any trademark products mentioned in this podcast belong to their respective companies.